with cerebral palsy. Judgment against hospital and doctor. Attorneys for plaintiff, Goodwin and Cheska. Win with Goodwin. Baby suffers stroke during delivery. Baby suffers hemiparesis and cerebral palsy. Judgment in favor of plaintiff baby and her parents. Attorneys for plaintiff, Goodwin and Cheska. Win with Goodwin. This is Scott Goodwin of the Goodwin and Cheska Law Center. My partner Jim Cheska and I can help you. We will find money for your child's care, especially if your child's condition was the result of negligence or error on the part of the doctor or hospital staff. Call the Goodwin and Shesco Law Center today and let us help. The number is 1-888-GOODWIN. 1-888-G-O-D-W-I-N. 1-888-GOODWIN. Or go online to 1-888-GOODWIN.com. Win with Goodwin. And remember, folks, if you do have a child with a birth trauma-related condition... You need to know that this is not only emotionally devastating, but it's financially devastating. That's why you need Goodwin and Cheska who know how to win these cases. Give them a call today at 1-888-GOODWIN. Appreciate you folks being with us tonight. Make sure to tune in tomorrow night for Bob Duco Primetime, 8 to 9 p.m. And, of course, tomorrow from noon to 4 as well for the Bob Duco Show. Good night. You've been listening to Bob Duco Primetime. Interviews, commentary, and respectful debate showing that our faith as Christians really does stand up to logic and intellectual reasoning. The opinions and views expressed on this program are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Crawford Broadcasting Company, this station, its management, staff, or advertisers. Comments may be addressed via email to station at wmuz.com. Bob Duco Primetime is a presentation and the property of Crawford Broadcasting Company and WMUZ Radio. Tune in tomorrow night today for another Bob Duco Primetime. WMUZ Detroit in crystal clear digital HD and online at WMUZ.com. It's 9 o'clock. And the WMUZ Life and Finance team is on the air. To make sure we're all headed in the right direction, we at WMUZ have assembled a team of experts. And every night, a different expert is here to give advice about the issues that impact your life. We hope you find the information on today's program to be inspiring. If you've been told you have to live with pain or a health problem, we encourage you to call and make an appointment with one of the doctors that host your weekly checkup at 866-521-WELL. Dr. Jonathan Lazar and Dr. Jamie Kramer are upper cervical doctors that believe you can have the life God intended for you. The number again is 866-521-WELL. That's 866-521-WELL. And there's a location near you with offices in Troy and Ann Arbor. If you're tired of searching for solutions for your condition, make an appointment right now at 866-521-WELL or check them out on the web at yourweeklycheckup.com. That's yourweeklycheckup.com. Now back to Dr. Jonathan Lazar and Dr. Jamie Kramer on Your Weekly Checkup.
This is the show dedicated to helping you live an extraordinary life. Our goal tonight is to give you hope, help you live with more energy, and help you experience health like never before. Welcome to your weekly checkup. Dr. Kramer is off this week, um, but I have a very, very special interview um, with a, he's, he's kind of my author crush. I was in San Francisco teaching at a seminar and in my in my hotel and, and reading this book, Michael Hyatt suggested that I read this book, and so I I did that, and um, it was it was fantastic. And the the book is called Essentialism, and the subtitle is The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. I'm I'm in my room in San Francisco, and I and I read this book, and it's one of these books that just completely messes me up. You know, like you'll read a book and it'll say do this or save this money or do that. And you think, okay, that's that's a nice idea. But essentialism completely wrecked me because what I, I knew the second I read this book that I was doing a ton of stuff that I didn't need to be doing, which is messy. It's really, really messy. But I was really grateful um, for the opportunity to kind of start this quest of um, how can I be on purpose and and clean some of this stuff out. So we're going to have that conversation. Uh, we're having that live. And um, the uh, we're super thrilled. The author, Greg, Greg McEwen, is is with us and he's going to be sharing so greg welcome to the show thank you for having me absolutely absolutely so um i having read the book and i'm hoping that our listeners will will check the book out so if i ask you any questions that is giving too much away just just let me know just let them know hey you, you got to read the book but um i highly no, recommend no that <laughs> all right perfect so you know what? What was it in you, Greg? What kind of woke you up to make you say, "Hey, I, I need to, I need to write this book, or share this story, or share this message"? Well, it um, it really came into focus when I got an email from my boss at the time saying that Friday would be a very bad time for my wife to have a baby, and uh, they they wanted me to be at their, uh, at a client meeting and. Friday, sure enough, was when my wife went to labor, and I'm in the hospital with her, and baby's born, healthy, everyone's well. But instead of being present in that unique, essential moment, I was feeling torn. How can I keep everybody happy? How can I keep my papa happy? How can I keep my wife happy? And it's this straddled approach, and um, to my shame, I chose to go to that meeting. Uh, I remember afterwards, my boss said, uh, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And I don't know that they did. The look on their faces did not evince that sort of confidence. But even if they had, uh, I realized that I had made a fool's bargain. And I had violated my integrity in order to try and uh, do it all. And... Really, that's when I learned the simple lesson, which is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Hmm. That's and a hard way to learn that. That's a that's a yeah, big deal. Suffering and, and error can uh, can really teach us powerful lessons, I think. And uh, and and so it was, you know, it wasn't so very long after that that I quit the job and uh, and pursued a very you know, the next path in my journey to, to, to teach and write and wrote the book Essentialism and uh, now teach about it and 
have a company that uh, provides you know, workshops into corporations, into teams to be able to help them to do the same. And we just feel like we have a, uh, a mission that is it's a worthy mission and can make a big difference for individual lives, but also uh, just for overall uh, fulfillment and achievement uh, you know, professionally for people and in teams as well. Yeah, that's. I think it's brilliant. You know, lifestyle stress is one of is the number one killer, no matter which statistic you look at, because you can say, well, no, it's heart disease, or no, it's diabetes, or no, it's cancer, or no, it's um, you know falling asleep at the wheel, or no, it's obesity, or no, it doesn't matter. All of those are lifestyle stress dependent, you know, conditions, uh, most most of them, um, or you know some component of them. And so we look we look at America, we look at the people. We're overdosed. We're overdrugged. We're we're sick and suffering. We're chasing, you know, we're chasing this idea of purpose or significance or or freedom or and we're completely in bondage while we're doing it. And we're giving everything. We're giving the best of ourselves to careers and significance and income and producing and these sort of things. And then at best, the most important people in our lives are getting the leftovers at best. And and then and we spend our lives just chasing all this stuff, not putting our oxygen masks on. And then when we've amassed whatever it is we have gone for right of, that we've tried to to build and grow then we spend the next phase of our life giving it all back because we've we have we have completely worn ourselves down and the lifestyle stress is wearing us out it's causing us to not function well and so now instead of enjoying this idea of enjoying retirement or enjoying the next phase of life we didn't enjoy it all the way through because we were chasing stuff and now we can't enjoy it because we're sick and suffering and and having a hard time and um, that was one of the the most brilliant connections that I thought uh, were kind of between the lines. And you know, the essentialist will make very different decisions than than the non-essentialist. So, if you will, just kind of spend a minute and and tell our listeners what, it, in a nutshell, what it would mean to be an essentialist. Well, it, at first, I just want to to name non-essentialist, given that description you just gave, because because you just articulated what the real uh, result is of a very particular philosophy and idea that has been sold to us uh, since the Industrial Revolution. And it's the idea that if you can fit it all in, you can have it all. It's the idea that, uh, that more is better, just more of anything and everything is better. And, uh, and the, the problem with the philosophy the problem with the idea is that it's not true. It's a total lie, and it doesn't. It's not. It's not one of these ideas that just irritates me. Uh, it makes me furious because it has the cost of it is so absurdly and insanely high. Uh, you know, you've just talked about uh, the, the physical cost, the mental cost, the emotional cost, the spiritual cost, even to to the individual. And now just, just just multiply it now by what it does to uh, to, to to marriages, to families, uh, communities. It is an incredible cost, and it's all because there's this dominant logic, so dominant in fact that it's a monopoly view. And what that means is that people don't even see it as an idea. Everybody's just living it, and so it's manifest in the symptoms you just described, but it's also manifest in this glorification of the busy uh, that we live with. 
And and in in totality, the, the summary idea uh, is the undisciplined pursuit of more. That is the cultural inheritance of our time. And and so that's the context. We must name that because that's the enemy of our story. That's the disease uh, behind the, the physical disease that you just described. Is this is this idea this this that, that has infected uh, so many people, so many organizations. The antidote to the disease is a disciplined pursuit of less but better, uh, or essentialism. And this is its own uh, counter uh, idea and philosophy and approach to life. It's not one more thing. It's a different way of doing everything. It's a different way of thinking about everything. So that instead of trying to do it all, have it all, shove it all in, force it all, all of these kinds of uh, descriptions, it is about uh, seeing the world as being fundamentally about trying to find those essential few things that really matter amidst a whole sea of things that are you know, sort of the trivial many. And so uh, essentialism is this, uh, is how to find what matters what's essential, eliminate what doesn't, and make it as easy and effortless as possible to achieve those things that matter most. Um, Hmm. That's what essentialism is. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Your Weekly Checkup with Dr. Kramer and Dr. Lazar. We're with special guest Greg McEwen, and we are talking about essentialism, which is the disciplined pursuit of less. Our number is 866-521-WELL, 866-521-9355. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back right after this. Hey, this is Dr. Lazar. And Dr. Kramer. Thanks for listening to your weekly checkup. We wanted to invite you into our offices for a complimentary consultation to find out whether this upper cervical work is right for you and your family. And it's great news. We have offices in Ann Arbor and in Troy. So take this number down. Our number is 866-521-WELL, 866-521-9355. And our teams are standing by waiting to take your call. Our website is yourweeklycheckup.com. That's yourweeklycheckup.com. Welcome back to your weekly checkup with Dr. Kramer and Dr. Lazar. We are bringing you, I think, one of the most uh, applicable, phenomenal ideas, I- I- not the right word, ideology, I think, might be mindset, might be a more appropriate word, um, lifestyle choice uh, tonight, because we want to, you know, we want to combat what, what are things that we can do? You know, you've heard us for over five years sharing with you how getting the pressure, the interference, the, 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 the mixed signal, the noise out of your nervous system and how that will balance your, your body out so you can function at your highest level, be the best you possible, realize and express your full God-given potential. That's what we've been talking about and uh, for the last you know, five years plus. And so we're excited to have Greg McEwen with us talking about uh, his book, Essentialism. And we, one of the, the best analogies that I loved in your book, Greg, was your, your closet analogy. Would you share that with our listeners? Well, it's just so, such a... Normal experience for us. You go to your closet, uh, and you know, what's it like? Uh, if if you don't if you don't follow a very particular approach, so if you take the default path, uh, it, there'll be lots of stuff in there. It'll be overpacked. 
uh, and yet it still sort of feels hard to find something you really love to wear. Uh, in fact, there's plenty of people that, that look at their closets and, and it's packed full and they think, I've got nothing to wear. There's nothing, even exactly. Though, even though it's packed full of stuff. And, uh, and, and so what do you do? I mean, just think about eventually you've had enough of the undisciplined pursuit of more in the closet. Uh, you know, sometimes you think, well, if I just had a larger closet, that would solve the problem. Which uh, you only can hold on to that idea until you get a larger closet, and then you realize that is not the problem, uh, and that you are both scenes of the crime. And uh, and so then you say, okay, I'm going to tie you through this closet. I'm going to I'm going to get to you know to, to, to get rid of some of these things. And you, you pick up an item of clothing, and something mysterious and almost magical happens in that moment. And you're looking at it. Uh, you think, well. You know, it might come back into fashion at some point. <laughs> right. Uh, or may, maybe it's going to fit me again at some point. Uh, and, and basically what is going on is that one is asking the broadest possible uh, question, which is, could I ever possibly wear this again, maybe? And the answer to that is inevitably yes. Sure. And so it goes back on the shelf. And so this is the this is the curse of the closet. Now we're not talking, of course, about closets. Just a metaphor, but for the closet of our lives, in which we do the same thing. An insufficiently broad criteria uh, means that we will be saying yes to almost everything, uh, and the result is that we our lives are full of things that uh, are not actually fulfilling and are not actually making a great contribution. And so the antidote again is to become more selective. So one could ask, uh, do I absolutely love this? Do I wear this often? Uh, is this, does this look terrific on me? Or, or even you could go further, as, as, um, as Marie Kondo has said recently, um, written about, you can ask of every item of clothing in your closet, does it spark joy? And if the answer is no to that question, then you've liberated to pass, give it away, pass it on. Uh, the same is true for our lives. It's all about how selective can we become and how careful can we be in exploring and evaluating the options that are coming our way. And so it, instead of asking, well, is this a good opportunity or could I, do I have the capability to do this thing that's been asked of me? Those are all very broad questions. The answers are almost always yes. Instead, we need to ask, what is the very best use of me? What is my highest point of contribution? And in this way, we start moving from being a non-essentialist to being an essentialist. So can you go too far the other direction? Can you spend too much time overanalyzing um, one of my one of my coaches, uh, executive coaches, said a, a long time ago. He said to me, um, "The you know he talks about the the analysis paralysis paralysis by analysis and doing all this stuff." And he also says things like success loves action, 
In fact, I say that a lot. I'll say that to listeners. Look, you've listened to us for a long time. You know you need to make a change. You've got to, you've got to take action. You cannot just sit here and take information in and do nothing with it. You have to take action. So is it possible to overanalyze it or look at an opportunity and scrutinize the heck out of it and then not have anything that you're doing that's essential? And, and I, my fear, besides the fear of missing out, um, that that has been a huge struggle for me as I as I've you know am going through this process the best I can through the book right like we haven't we haven't worked together um, directly but the, my biggest fear is either missing out on something and, and and the other one is my fear is I don't want to ever be bored and I don't want to be off mission right like Schindler in Schindler's List they said you helped so many say but I could have helped one more you know and, mm-hmm. and in such mm-hmm. a service oriented business where we're in relationships and we love on families and we help people with their physical needs it starts as physical needs but can get into bigger stuff than that I think man how could I possibly how can I possibly be truly an essentialist when I'm providing health care to people? Don't you just want to open up the doors and just let everybody in and just serve everybody? Um, and so that personally, to be transparent, that's that's a struggle that I have with it and facing opportunities. And, you know, as our practice and brand and platform grows, there are more opportunities that present themselves than I'm able to keep up with. And that is so it's a very real life issue for me at this point. Well, there's a few different things in there, but let me respond with it by just sharing what what I observed after 17 years of asking the question, why is it that otherwise successful people and companies, by the way, uh, don't break through to the next level? Why is that? And there's a lot of reasons. It's a complex answer, but the answer that finally came to me was one that was hidden in plain sight, and it was success. And I noticed it this way. So I was working with Silicon Valley companies, and I noticed that when you have a small team of people focused on the right few things at the right time, there's a little bit of luck in there, too, to get the timing right. But when you do that, focus on those things, it leads to success. You can generate tremendous momentum and put your energy behind that. What comes with success? An increase of options and opportunities. And that sounds like the right problem to have, but it doesn't sure. turn out to be a problem if it leads to and it's Jim Collins originally that used the phrase that was used already here, that the undisciplined pursuit of more. And so what I noticed was that success can become a catalyst for failure if we're not really careful about it. So I'm not anti-success, but I do believe that we have to learn how to become successful at success. And broadly speaking, what I think is that is that the industrialized world has become successful uh, in, in the sense that it's increased options and opportunities massively for the vast majority of people, uh, just simply thinking, think, think social media, think internet, think just a number of things that one can do and pursue. And so collectively now, culturally, we are in this position of having far too many things pull, pulling on us all the time. So whereas I mean, you talked about the fear of missing out, and, and whereas fear of missing out of a, a FOMO for short um, has always been a thing, right? You've always been concerned about maybe keeping up with the Joneses. Now the Joneses is, 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 a, is a hundred times or a thousand times X number of people that you are going to be aware of and noticing and thinking about because as we've gone from being connected to hyper-connected uh, over the last 10 years, we've gone also from information overload to opinion overload. And so what, what I'm trying to say is that in this kind of environment with this level of, of options and opportunities and distraction and opinions and all of this, we have to discover a new way of being. And so, the, you know, instead of, just, instead of just being aware of the 
fear of missing out. I think we have to discover uh, the joy of missing out, uh, or JOMO for sure. Huh. And, and we we have to just realize that 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 eliminating things from our lives has a value, but not doing something good has a value, and its value is not just saying no. I parenthetically, I I I didn't write a book called Noism. Uh, I wrote a book called Essentialism. The difference really matters. That the reason you say no, the reason that there's a joy in missing out, is because there's something more meaningful, there's something more essential that uh, to, to pursue and to give one's life to. And so, essentialism is not about uh, becoming less helpful or less service-oriented. It's about saying there are simply trade-offs with a good heart desiring to make a difference in the world, what is the best contribution that I can make? And that is the spirit of essentialism. So I think it's, I think it's a, an excellent, excellent way to, um, you know, excellent pursuit, right? Excellent pursuit. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about whether the pursuit actually has a destination or whether it's just kind of a, a constantly evolving pursuit as, as, the, as the book titled. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after this. We hope you find the information on today's program to be inspiring. If you've been told you have to live with pain or a health problem, we encourage you to call and make an appointment with one of the doctors that host your weekly checkup at 866-521-WELL. Dr. Jonathan Lazar and Dr. Jamie Kramer are upper cervical doctors that believe you can have the life God intended for you. The number again is 866-521-WELL. That's 866-521-WELL. And there's a location near you with offices in Troy and Ann Arbor. If you're tired of searching for solutions for your condition, make an appointment right now at 866-521-WELL. Or check them out on the web at yourweeklycheckup.com. That's yourweeklycheckup.com. Now back to Dr. Jonathan Lazar and Dr. Jamie Kramer on your weekly checkup. Welcome back to your weekly checkup with Dr. Kramer with a C and Dr. Lazar. We are two upper cervical chiropractors bringing you information to help you realize your full God-given potential, you and your family. Our number is 866-521-WELL, 866-521-9355. If you like what you're hearing so far, uh, definitely check out Greg McEwen's book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. That's available everywhere. Um, and fantastic book, definitely a must read for people who are interested in, in living their, their best life. Also, if we can be of service to you and you're interested in your complimentary consultation in one of our offices in Ann Arbor or in Troy, um, just give us a call at that toll-free number. And uh, anytime, 24-7 outside of the showtime, you can be connected with one of our offices and leave a message. We always respond within 48 business hours, and we'll get back with you to find out if uh, your problem is something that, that we can help with. So, Greg, as as we were going into the last break, 
I had um, alluded to, you know, your so the the subtitle of your book is the Discipline Pursuit. Uh, so, is there any uh, the Discipline Pursuit of Less? I should finish that thought. That would be an essentialist thing to do, right? Is to finish the thought. And yeah. and so, um, can can you arrive there? And and if so. How do you know when you've made it to the point, like what is, you know, in, in healthcare we have objective, we have outcome assessments where we say, okay, if, you, if you're if you so dizzy right now that you cannot walk more than 10 steps, then, then let's set a goal. Okay, if you can walk 20 steps without feeling nauseous, then, then we're going to consider that good progress. And it's very objective. It's very concrete. We know exactly what we're going for. If you can run the marathon in October with your daughter, Without stopping, we know that we have given you exactly what you've asked for. Um, and that's kind of how our brains work. So how how do we know, uh, how can we check in or pass the test? Am I living an essentialist lifestyle? Well, I think that one test of this is, uh, is am, I, am I in this present moment doing what's most important now? Do I feel joy in this moment? Am I present in this moment? And and I think that has a lot to do with becoming an essentialist. Uh, sometimes when people, even maybe I'll do a keynote at a conference and someone will come up afterwards and say, I just uh, love what you said. I'm such a good reminder. Uh, there's one more thing that I need to remember to do. Uh-oh. And I always want to point out that you know I don't think I don't think you heard what I said. Right. Uh, that that it's it's a different approach. You've got to become something different. And so I, I would encourage people, though, to, to be very gentle on themselves in this journey. Uh, they're going, we are all going to be off track 90% of the time. But just like when you're on a flight going from you know, San Francisco to London, the reason the flight gets there at all is because it keeps coming back on track. But 90% of the time, it's off track. And I think that's much more realistic expectation for people to have of themselves uh, is that they they need to they just need to keep on coming back. They need to keep on going back to the question. Okay, hold on. I'm feeling lost. Don't know what I'm doing. What is essential? Figure it out. Move towards it again. Uh, indeed, I would put it this way that I think really there's just two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there are people who are lost, and then there are people who know they are lost. And it, it's, it's, it's to be in the second category that, uh, that the essentialist journey begins. It's just to admit it. I don't know what. I don't know what's most important to me. I don't know what's most important now. I, I, I don't have the answer to that question. And facing it, having the courage to face it, is the beginning of the journey because then you say very, very naturally – well, what is essential to me? And you create space to, to answer that question. And that's, uh, that's the first of what I would say is three disciplines of how to become an essentialist. That's incredibly liberating, just that concept, because, um, you know, I, I, grew up in, I grew up in church, still very much involved in church, um, and uh, not Catholic, although I've been accused of that several times because, every, you know, people that know me well just say I'm, I'm driven by guilt a lot of times, or I don't, I don't, I don't want right. that to happen, so I'm going to avoid that. And I have to tell you that um, even, even reading this, I said in the beginning in the intro, this book kind of wrecked me. It kind of messed me 
me up big time because I thought, oh my gosh, this is something I have to do. And it and I wanted to, but it, it felt very heavy. I mean, even in preparing for the show again and rereading the book and going over, and it felt very heavy. Like, man, how do I know if this is going to happen? How do I know? And in this weird, ironic way, it was almost adding stress. Like, oh, I have to get this right. And hearing you explain how, you know, the the jet is off course 90% of the time and it gets back on course, um, I got to say that's that's quite freeing and liberating to hear. So I'm, I think that's I think that's really cool. I um, I saw a, a description recently, and a lot of people that listen to our show and subsequently then or follow us on iTunes, listen to our podcast. Um, they will. A lot of them are entrepreneurs for for whatever reason. Dr. Kramer and I both are. We own our own clinics and and lead our own teams and 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 teach in the profession, kind of similar that way. But um, I just recently read this analysis. Saw a picture of a day in the life as an entrepreneur, and it's this it's this plotted graph of ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And so it it will go from, I'm excited to, oh, this is hard to uh, back up to it's working and back down to, oh, I messed up and back up to give up the good for the great. And then dropping way down to, I think I'm going bankrupt and then back up to, I'm good. I don't know why I get so down on myself and then go back down to, I'm wrong. I, I, I was wrong about that. I suck. And then back up to, wait a second, my life is great. And that that is so I laughed so hard when I said that I might have cried a little bit, too, because it, 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 it's so accurate that we can we can be all over the place with that. Um, when when you are at a place and, and your book addressed this well, when you're at a place where you find yourself on this island of non-essentialism and overcommitment and uh, a fat schedule that you brag about. Look at all these appointments I have. And, you know, it's like this badge of honor to be so busy that you can't tuck your kids in at night or something. And so you have all of these things going on and there's movement. So you feel like it's like the illusion of productivity is I'm moving, I'm doing stuff, I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm so busy, this is great, but you're not getting any traction, you're not moving toward your, your highest purpose, your sole purpose or anything like that. How do you get, how do you, um, you know, your your book talks about uncommitting or, or, or kind of backing off some of those things. And I know people listening are in that, um, you know, they're, they're committed at church and committed at work and committed at school and committed in their careers and taking on extra projects and heading boards that they're on and all this stuff. And, and, and they'll hear this and think, gosh, maybe, maybe there is, maybe there, there is a little bit more going on than needs to. And, and maybe they'll read your book and, and, get messed up like I did and say, maybe I do need to make some significant changes here. How do you start? How do you uncommit? How do you say, look, I've already said I would do this, but it's just not going to work for me. How does that happen? Well, I, I, one more time, I want to actually just go back to something you were saying before for a moment, because sure. what you're describing about this, the weight that you're describing, you're reading essentialism and suddenly you're just feeling even more stressed, is it, because, if I can be so bold about it, because I think you may be trying to be an essentialist in a non-essentialist way. Huh. Because it's a counterfeit that you're describing. I have to be perfect at essentialism. But, but everything perfect now is, is absolutely an extension of the industrial age that brought us non-essentialism in the first place. And it, it, it's just not it's just not it's not possible, it's not sensible, it's not wise, it's not healthy, it's not human. It comes out of a machine 
oriented uh, logic. So let's just do a little history lesson for a while because I think this is this is such an important part of it because the mindset is so deeply entrenched in us that even sitting there reading about essentialism, you're reading it through the lens of a non-essentialist and so therefore interpret it the way you just described. So you have to start working on the mindset first. Otherwise, no matter what is written, it doesn't even help. So, so let's go back. 1400s, priority, the word priority came into the English language. It was singular, one thing, the prior thing, the very first thing. And uh, what, what I think is amazing about that, phrase, that, that word and that definition is that it stayed singular in that form for some 500 years. So that, so that literally for half a millennium, nobody in the English-speaking world, millions and millions of people using the English language, nobody uses the word priorities for, for, for that long. It's amazing. Why didn't they do it? Because it's a very sensible word. How can you have very, very many absolutely very first for all other things, things. Your top ten you, priorities, you, huh? You can't. Right. Priorities, right. You can't have you can't have priorities. You can have lots of important things, but you cannot have many before everything else things. So the reason I'm giving that history lesson is to is to illustrate that the Industrial Revolution, that's when that's when they, that's when we started using this term priorities. And it's just a little illustration of something bigger that was happening in the Industrial Revolution as we started to think that every problem could be solved with a factory system of logic and work. And that was true. It was true for a variety of things. It massively increased the productivity in a whole series of fields. But what it didn't do is it didn't lead to the thriving of human potential. It didn't have people suddenly healthier and happier in, in, the way that, uh, in the way that it promised. And so, for example, uh, you know, the word perfection itself changed in the same period. So perfection before the Industrial Revolution, before there was factory systems that could produce like the same chair a thousand times, a million times, the same car a thousand times. Before that, perfection, a perfect chair, was a chair that was the best that type of wood could be. You know, so each one was different, each one was unique, each one was... Uh, was was uh, you know a little imperfect even a perfect chair wasn't one that was the same as another chair it was one that was unique in its correct way in its own way and so the industrial revolution in introduced a sort of a certain version of perfectionism a certain version of efficiency that everything must be done efficiently, a certain view of what it meant to be healthy I mean a machine is healthy if it's on and it's going. But a human isn't healthy if it's just on and going. It needs to rest and sleep and recuperate, and that's health. Uh, but, but a machine doesn't see it that way. And so this whole machine-based thinking about people as machines, I mean, think of our language, a cog in the wheel. Uh, the, the idea that humans became machines created a whole set of unintended consequences that are still very much with us in our mindset, in our thinking. And so... And so we, I think we have to begin first there. We have to say, look, let me, can I maybe clear out some of this outdated, quite harmful thinking? Could I start to notice it? I forget trying to be, a, be an essentialist, do essentialist stuff even. Just could I become aware of the non-essentialist thinking and bullying that's going on inside of my head? Could I start there and, 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 and start to see how 
how impossibly unkind those set of expectations are. They're just not true. They're lies. That's what they are. They're lies. Hmm. And so I think that that's the beginning place. And, and to become aware of those things. And then over time, I mean, the first quarter of the book is not about doing anything differently. The first quarter of the book is, uh, is entirely focused on this mindset piece. And what right. do we do to, to notice non-essentialism in the way we think and, and remove it and eliminate it? And we have to do that first. Otherwise, we'll turn essentialism into a counterfeit, which is this form of sort of perfectionism that I think you're describing. I think that's extremely accurate, and um, you know I, I appreciate you you pointing that out. You in your book, you've got a one of my favorite graphics. In fact, I I think we tweeted that to let people know you would be you would be on tonight's show um, about the you know it feels like things are squiggly and all over the place and you say that um you know in fact you talk even about results which is what everybody's after right forget how we get there but as long as we get results right which is not correct but that's kind of the that seems to be the mindset a lot and you talk about a non-essentialist team would be a fractured team that makes a millimeter of progress in a million directions. I mean, churches, organizations, businesses, practices, families, that so accurately describes what a lot of so many people deal with. While at the same time, the essentialist is a unif- an essentialist team, the results would be that they're unified and they break through to the next level of contribution. And even that is like we're, you know, the, the whole point of this is so that they can contribute more or better, maybe, might be the, they can contribute better um, while they're doing that. As, you know, as I, as I look at this, we, we talk to patients all the time. And, and it sort of happened. It wasn't intentional. But the byproduct of getting interference out of your nervous system or out of your life or out of your relationships or the, the concept applies wherever you want to apply it. The, the I, I was talking to a lady today and I said, you know, if you had a problem with your microwave not working and your refrigerator not working and your hairdryer not working and all and your and your alarm clock not working and your TV not working you could call five different people and say I need a TV expert and a hairdryer expert and a microwave expert and a refrigerator expert you could call all of these people when in reality you may have a problem with all of those things, or maybe there's a problem with power getting to those things. And so instead of needing five or 10 or 15 or 30 different specialists, what if you could just look at how they interrelate and say, wait a minute, these are all run by electricity. Maybe electricity is not on. And so in the same way, your body works the same way. You know, what if you have headaches and jaw pain and neck pain and back pain and dizziness and infertility and nausea when you get up and walk and these sort of things, you may not have 12 different problems. It might be that we can just remove the interference and allow your body to work the way it's supposed to work. Kind of if I may borrow it, kind of an essentialist concept on accident. We never really intended it to be that way. We just would do what we do. And then people report, my gosh, I'm saving $1,500 a month now because I'm not buying all these medications. And, and I'm saving, you know, 13 hours a week now because I'm not going to these different appointments. And so so I, from that point, I get that as a as a natural byproduct, if you will. Um, and But, but how, do we, how do we get people to say, I've got to try the next thing because that could be 
adding one more thing if it's if it's not the thing that will correct the cause or or address the cause. Um, I, I'm not sure that I'm asking the question clearly, but but I'm looking for a way to to find out what if the next thing is the thing that we need to do that will eliminate a lot of non-essential things. Well, I mean, the the idea of there being a priority at any given moment is is certainly consistent with this with what you just said about uh, about finding the the kingpin uh, of any given situation. I mean, you know, I'm not advocating for shallow thinking uh, and and simplistic uh, approaches to anything. Uh, I, I'm saying there's two kinds of simplicity, right? Uh, there's the simplicity on this side of complexity, right? That's not worth anything. And then there's this simplicity on the other side of complexity. If you've grappled with all of it, you're looking for what is the what really is going on here? What's the what's the news? Uh, and, and and once you can identify the news, then you found something that's essential. You found the thing that needs to be done and done differently. Uh, I, I think that you know, I mean, let's just go through very briefly the, the three disciplines of, of essentialism. The first is to explore and to explore more broadly than a non-essentialist would, because you're not committing deeply to every single thing. You're not, it's not every single thing you hear about you go big on. You keep exploring and keep listening and paying attention and make, connecting the dots and synthesizing until finally you go, oh, yes, that's the one that is the right path for me. That's, the, that's correct. And then when you figure out what's essential, you have to figure out how to gracefully eliminate what is not essential. And that takes new skills, and it takes some practice, and it takes getting it wrong. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, there's a whole section on the book about how to be able to have those conversations with people. Uh, and then the final, the third area is, is how to create, you know, the, the book is the disciplined pursuit. And, and the, only, the only reason I don't like that word is because, the word discipline itself is understood through a non-essentialist angle, uh, a lens like everything else is. And so what that means is that people think that they have, you know, oh, I can just, I can create more discipline. I, I, I don't have to choose between things. I can just, I'll psych myself up into this. I will make myself disciplined. I'll just do it this time when I didn't before. And what I've found in the research that I've done is that actually your level of discipline on any given day is very fixed. And so you just have a certain amount, finite amounts of discipline. And so you don't have to fight that or pretend you can positive think your way out of it. It's about how do you use your finite bucket of discipline to uh, you know, there's two ways to do it. The non-essentialists will try to force their way through the execution, make it happen at the last minute. The essentialist says, oh, I, I've only got a finite supply, so I'm going to use it in, to create a routine, a process, a system that makes execution as effortless as possible. And And so I, I think that Understanding those three different disciplines of essentialism are helpful in, in thinking about this as a cycle that you constantly are doing. If you're exploring, you're eliminating, you're building a system for execution, you're exploring again, and so on, right? You just keep on doing this. 
this is the perpetual, uh, you know, effort of an aspiring essentialist. You talk about the <clears throat> when we when we look at less, you know, um, Real Housewives of wherever, all these different cities, right? They all have more, right? They have more convertibles, more cars, more diamonds, more dresses, more um, assistants, more. They have people that pack their luggage for them, and they have, right, um, more yachts and more jet skis and more. And and it sells because, I, you know, less, less is boring, but. I mean, at least the the non-essentialist mindset. Less is less is boring. More is sexier, right? Like more cars, more houses, more planes, more dinner events. More. That's that's what's sexy. That why does what does that tap into in us? Why are we so drawn to more? Just for the sake, you know, Rockefeller, you know, just a million more, right? Like what what is it about us that wants that? Well, there's a, there's a lot of things, uh, but I can. I can certainly just go to sort of what I would call generation two of of the non-essentialism uh, philosophy. You know, phase one I already described, Industrial Revolution. Phase two was after the Second World War, there was a shift from being citizens to being consumers. And that itself is just an extension of non-essentialism. You know, that what you needed was to, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, it was to use the Latin uh, word it was a panem strategy. Panem was a, a term used by the Romans in the times of the Colosseum. It meant circus and bread. And what it meant really was, can you can you keep the populace from revolution by keeping them distracted with circus and bread? And I think that was a deliberate strategy in the post. Post-Second World War world was instead of dealing with what had been the most psychologically discombobulating experience of the age uh, and healing and talking about it and and giving and processing it and it was just immediately move in what we need is new houses and new cars and more mass-produced goods and time-saving devices and this became the ideal. I, I, I have, I find it humorous to to think of the founding fathers in those terms. It's hard to think of Jefferson as a consumer, or, or John Adams as a consumer, or George Washington as a consumer. And it doesn't mean they didn't consume things. It's just that wasn't their identity, and that's exactly what I'm trying to say happened after the Second World War is that it became an identity. That we, we in this country, we in each country are consumers first who happen to be citizens. That is a big, that is a big mental shift. It's a big extension of what I've just been describing. It is this, these layers of thinking, uh, and, uh, and, and so the output is, is predictable. Uh, in that, in that mindset, you, the game, the game being played is more stuff. I mean, that that's the game, and and if if the game produced the correct outcomes, it would be a perfectly reasonable game to play. If it led to people feeling fulfilled and happy and healthy and safe and and uh, contributing and so on, 
fine, then that game might be the right game if it produces. Uh, you know, people who are running around trying to buy things they can't afford to impress people they don't like, uh, if, if it keeps <laughs> them constantly unfulfilled, then the, something's wrong with the game. Something is, something is off, something is false. And I strongly believe and advocate that, that it is, in fact, false. Uh, and, uh, and so I think this is why. Our, you know, we look at, um, you know, in your, in, in your book, in the Explore section, you, we tell people to do so in our offices. We can tell whether the nervous system is balanced, right, whether the, the gas and the brake of the nervous system is balanced. So if, if, the, if a bear is chasing you, you certainly want your foot on the gas neurologically. But if the bear is not chasing you and you're supposed to be enjoying your family or, or resting, um, you, you have to have the brake on. You have to have the parasympathetic nervous system involved at a, at a higher level than the sympathetic. And if you're always engaged or, or locked in this fight or flight, um, system then you're what we call stuck in defense physiology and your body responds as if there is always a bear chasing you and so we our work helps this and we measure this on regular intervals to see you know how the nervous system is responding and people ask all the time well what can I do to you know I'm coming here and I'm getting your services but outside of this what can I do to to help in this and and we tell them things like exercise and you know pursue faith that will you know that has a, that has a healing effect make sure that you do things and so blah 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 lots of non-essentialist conversation just try this and this and this and this and if that doesn't work double this up and try that and do the other thing and what I um the the thing that people get the most is I'll just I'll simply tell them do you have anything in your life that either now or in the past you've done that helped you get lost in time this might sound familiar right embrace the wisdom of your inner child right um, right the do you have anything that you do that will help you get lost in time you know oh yeah when I'm playing guitar I love to when I'm playing piano when I'm skiing with my kids when I'm okay that that is what you need to do if you want to improve the score and it is amazing. Now, there are some diehards that are like, if one is good, ten is better. So so we have to, like, kind of kind of curb that enthusiasm a little bit. But um, that by itself seems to be such a huge thing. And so my point in, in that is we're, we're, we're starting to interpret the, being able to measure this with exactly what you're saying. So you're, you know, you, you teach or have taught at huge places, you know, if I may, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Salesforce, like Pixar, everybody knows of these places and you have taught your concepts there, which is fantastic. And we're saying, hey, that same mindset is what is what can help with your health. Um, I, you know, I love I love how that can happen. You talk about sleep in your book. Um, of course, phenomenally simple, essential idea. Um, and then how, how to select things out. You alluded to that earlier, earlier in the show. Um, 
being unavailable. When we travel, we try to travel out of the country so that the excuse of our phones not working is legitimate. You know, I'm sorry, my phone doesn't work, and I'm not going to pay right. that much money to have you call me. So that that seems to work really well. And so we're able to to literally quantify, which might now not be a very essentialist concept, but we can quantify how somebody's responding to the point that the very procedure that I'm addressing is is being the test is being performed on US Marine Corps troops before they're being deployed and the lower their score on this one specific test neurologically the more likely they are to produ- or to to come back with post traumatic stress disorder to to ex- you know experience that and the concept right. behind all that what's be- behind all of that is your nervous system is the very system that allows you to adapt so if the titanic sinks and half of the people can survive long enough in the frigid waters for the lifeboats to come, and the other half can't. It has nothing to do with their external environment because they're all in the same frigid April fifteenth iceberg, uh, you know, iceberg water. Um, so we see that what allowed the ha- the fifty percent or whatever number was that was able to get on the lifeboats to survive was their body's ability to adapt. And in our society, we're all at some point in this frigid water, and we don't know what to do, and we don't know if we're going to survive. And so the best way everybody talks about stress management and do this and zen and find this place and and that's great. Actually, I said that a little flippantly, and I, but I don't mean it that way. The point is though, if you can't control your environment. And I don't know anybody that can. And if you can't control what happens to you, maybe the next best thing would be to make it so that you're adaptable as possible. I don't know how to tie that into the concept of essentialism, um, but I believe that that connects very, very strongly. Like you can roll with the punches better when you're doing less but better. Can you can you explain that a little more? Yes, I mean I think that uh, I think that this idea of of being present uh, and and just just find, allowing yourself to be in that moment uh, so that you can so that you can adapt in the way you're describing. I mean, let me give you one essential thing that I think connects, which is that there's two ways of thinking about focus. Uh, the, the more typical way of thinking about it is focus as a noun, uh, which is this is this thing, you take a picture, you are now in focus. Uh, you carry that picture with you, you are in focus. But the, the other way of thinking about it is focus as a verb, which is that it's something you're constantly adapting to all the time. Our eyes are in focus right now, not because we took a picture when we first woke up this morning, but because we're adapting constantly. Uh, We're exploring, eliminating, executing, and it's the ability to quickly do that, uh, to keep coming back. What's important now? Uh, You know, I've been doing these things, but what's important now? Um, And, 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 you know, that's a, a response to what you were saying. 
I like it. What's important now, it gives us a lot of freedom. Um, you know, I think the, I have been, you know, I've been guilty of thinking, uh, you know, Simon Sinek talking about the power of the golden circle and why and these sort of things. And I think, um, I always think of that, everything that, that you're talking about is such a dynamic concept. And I think of it all, I, I, I have to redefine it because in my mind, it's all been static. What is my why now forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Or a good leader knows the vision and never diverts from the vision and brings the people back to the vision well good lord maybe it's okay maybe it is perfectly okay for those things to change um and it doesn't mean that we're not a good leader it doesn't mean that we're not um you know disciplined it doesn't mean it sounds like it's possible to be that the most disciplined approach is to have that focus be a verb and ask exactly that what's what is the most important right now and and it sounds like it's okay that that changes is that is that fair to assume well i think that's exactly right it's uh, it it takes the it it allows focus to be something that we learn about, that we grow into, that we discover as a, you've mentioned faith more than once in this interview, and if you take the, the Catholic term of repentance, its original root word uh, was the Greek uh, metanoia, and metanoia means to have a whole new perspective on life, uh, and so to repent doesn't just mean feel guilty, say so. Uh, feel guilty, confess, it's to suddenly see things differently, to see things in a whole new way. And I think that essentialism is much more like that. Uh, that it's, uh, that it, it, again, it's not about being perfect at the beginning, everything perfect now. Uh, that's perfectionism, uh, post-industrialized world version of perfection. It's, it's, it's not true. It's not helpful. Uh, what we want is something that can... Uh, a, a mindset that enables us to keep on learning, keep being off track, keep on growing, discovering a new way of seeing things, discovering what really matters most to you uh, in, in new circumstances and, uh, and adapting as quickly as possible. To, to not be afraid of saying, I was wrong in the past. I was lost in the past. I was doing something incorrectly. Every time we do that, all we're really admitting is that we have become wiser. Uh, and, and we don't need to prove that we have all the answers now, uh, that we, that I know exactly the rest of my life what I'm supposed to do. No, I mean, I don't. You don't. Mm. Nobody does. Sure. What we can do is we can ask the question more often than the next person. We can ask the question more often than we have in the past so that we are more quickly adjusting and, and getting left further afield before making this adjustment. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's the right way to approach becoming an essentialist. Wow. I think it's fantastic. Greg, how can people find you? I, look, I think that the simplest thing is just to go to gregmcewen.com. Uh, there's lots of good conversation that uh, takes place there. You can sign up for newsletter and get, get, uh, get video content and articles and so on. Uh, just Greg McKeown, G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com. You can even you can even take a quiz there and find out how how essentialist you are. That's I yeah, think it's right. awesome. 
I think it's awesome. Well, Greg, we really, really are grateful. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate what you're doing. And um, we are, I think we're after the same thing, which I, I love. I, I We talk alignment physically. We talk alignment in organizations. We talk alignment in relationships. We talk, and I and I love that our, um, our, our purpose and our, our approach, or at least, you know, I like that, that there's an alignment there. So thank you so much for sharing with our listeners here on WMUZ and on your weekly checkup podcast. Uh, any, any final thoughts before we sign off? It's just, it's just a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for all that you're doing. Well, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It- Aches and pains are signs that your body isn't working right. Your brain, spinal cord, and all your nerves control how your body works. Physical, chemical, or emotional stresses produce a defensive posture. Muscles contract, locking spinal joints that pinch or irritate nearby nerves. Lack of nervous system integrity sets the stage for disease and ill health. A thorough examination helps chiropractors find these subluxations. Applying a precise force to stuck spinal joints helps your body right itself. And that is how chiropractic care has helped millions of people get well and stay well. On behalf of our teams in Ann Arbor and in Troy, a very special thank you to Greg McEwen. Uh, GregMcEwen.com, his book Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, I highly recommend. And on behalf of our team at WMUZ, Have a fantastic week. We look forward to being back here same time, same place next week. God bless you.